And we just um, pray a short further prayer now as we come to look at God's word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. Some passages are easier than others to understand. Um, Some uh, are more lively for us than others. So we pray that today you will take my words and the thoughts of our hearts and you will teach us more about you and that you will teach us what you want us to learn today and that you will, through your Holy Spirit, so um, speak to us that we will go out both challenged and more ready to be your servants in the world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judah, God's people, were in a mess. And they were thinking that the answer was to make an unholy alliance with Egypt. Humanly speaking, it was such an attractive proposition. Egypt was wealthy, wise, and pluralistic, and they worshipped every god under the sun. So why was Yahweh's prophet Isaiah so dead set against it? And why was he protesting in a way he'd never done before by walking around the city starkers? The Assyrians had a political stranglehold on Judah, the covenant people of God. Judah had always been a small nation. They were part of the remnant of Israel, forced to depend on Yahweh for her security. And uh, when she did depend on God, she was then the strongest. However, an alliance with Egypt was a real temptation to the very politically ambitious rulers of Judah. But Isaiah was resolutely opposed to this. And this oracle, his message of doom against Egypt, is an attempt to dissuade them from having anything to do with Egypt. Martin read chapters 19 and 20 um, for us so well. Um, You might like to turn to it on page 702 as we go through this passage. Page 702 in the Church Bibles. Chapters 19 and 20 are divided into two sections, three sections. Um, And I would call the whole heading of it, Beware, God is at Work. The first part, just to outline that, is this poem in the first 15 verses of chapter 19, and it's about God's judgment on Egypt. Here he shows that none of the gifts Egypt had historically relied on, their gods, the productivity of the Nile, and their fabled wisdom would be able to save her from God's judgment. The second part, verses 16 to 25, is about the healing of the nation of Egypt. Here he speaks of how after God's judgment, there will be reconciliation, deliverance, and unity, as one day Egypt will turn to worship 
Israel's God, Yahweh. So these first two parts are a prophecy into the future. But the third part in chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, Isaiah returns to help Judah understand the present. The certainty was that Egypt would fall to Assyria. So Isaiah's premise is, why trust Egypt when she cannot save herself? And since one day, she will turn to worship the very God you are now failing to trust. In all this, Isaiah stresses that it's about what's about to happen is an outworking of the divine purposes of God. It's not an outworking of sociological laws, market forces, or political fortunes. The people can only be saved by turning to the Lord. To sign a treaty with Egypt, says Isaiah, and he says this later in chapter 28 and verse 14 following, to sign a treaty with them is to sign your death warrant. In other words, beware, God's at work. So let's look at these passages in more detail. What happens when Yahweh the Lord comes to Egypt? First, Isaiah uses the imagery of the Canaanite storm god Baal to say, see, the Lord rides on a swift cloud. This idea of um, him being on a cloud is very something that they would have identified with. But it's not the Assyrian armies that the Egyptians should fear, but the Lord God coming in power and majesty. Before the living God, the idols of Egypt are helpless. In poetic language, here in verse 1 it says, they will tremble and the people are terrified. And apparently there's a word in the NIV here that is missing at the beginning of verse 2. We've read in verse 1, See the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. For, and that's the word that's not translated here, um, for when God comes in judgment against Egypt, he will stir up their society. The Egyptians who just loved order and hated change of all sorts would lose heart and be thoroughly frustrated as order gives way to disorder and they will lose their nerve as God frustrates every proposal they have for national recovery. Cults will thrive and they will look to the dead to help them. But all they do is useless because God Almighty will hand them over to a cruel master, verse 3. There are various suggestions as to who this was. It could have been the Ethiopian Panki or Sargon or the Assyrian Ashurbanipal. But whoever the person was, note the Lord's words I will hand over. It's clear that the, the pers- this person will only rule at the sufferance of Yahweh, the God of Israel. It was God's action. 
God's judgment would cause, first of all, social change. Secondly, in verses 5 to 10, God's judgment would cause them to suffer economically. Any of you who visited Egypt will know how strategic the River Nile is in the economy of the country, even today. If it weren't for the Nile, Egypt would simply be an eastern extension of the Sahara Desert. The Nile is the lifeblood of the nation, regularly bringing water for irrigation and new topsoil to the land. It's a, mean of, it's a means of transport and, of course, today, of tourism. Some of you may have gone down the Nile by boat. Well, I'll never forget, actually, travelling by train alongside the Nile from Cairo to Luxor. The route followed the Nile, and we were fascinated on this long day's journey to see how the fields alongside the Nile were fertile and they were being irrigated by artesian wells. And the people would then be able to, uh, with this perhaps ancient way of irrigation, would actually be able to water their fields and their animals. Where there was water, it was lush and green, and where there wasn't water, that was also very clear. Um, The land was dry, dusty, and infertile. So in verse 5, we read how Isaiah envisions a day when the waters of the river will dry up. This was unheard of, but Isaiah says it's foolish to put one's trust in any natural resource, even one as dependable as the Nile. Economically, this would spell disaster. With no water in the river or canals, the crops will wither and die and there'll be no food. And even the good soil alongside the river will dry out and be blown away. Alongside soil erosion, the fishing industry would collapse and the manufacture of fine linen derived from flax would not be sustained, causing unemployment among the weavers and the cotton merchants. Both employers and employees will be deeply demoralized and sick at heart. Note those descriptive words. Verse 8, the fishermen will lament. The weavers despair and lose hope, or we might say lose heart. And the merchants will be dejected, and the wage earners, verse 10, will be sick at heart. God's judgment will have severe economic effect on the Egyptians. So that's social change, economic uh, failure, and thirdly, verses 11 to 15, God's coming judgment will mean the collapse of Egypt's political system. Egypt was known in the ancient world for its wisdom and culture. But Isaiah says all of that will prove empty and useless in the face of God's plan. They won't gain any help from their wise men. Even the Zoans, the wisest of Pharaoh's counselors, will be unenlightened 
The leaders of Memphis are unable to read the signs of the times or say what God Almighty has planned, so they will only mislead. Zoan and Memphis were the two previous capital cities in the Delta area. So he's saying that these leaders just won't be able to read the times or say what God has planned. They will just mislead, verse 13. And they're seen as nothing but fools, verse 11. Isaiah then gives us a wonderful word picture in verse 14. He says their leaders will dither and stagger around like drunken fools, using the same language as in chapter 9 and verse 14 and 15. He says their leaders, he, he says that from top to bottom, Egypt's entire collection of counselors will be helpless to discern what God is doing with them and their land. To me, as I sort of reflected on that, I thought, hmm, this seems to somehow have resonance with what's happening in the Middle East and in Europe today. Massive social economic and political unrest, leaving so many with a spirit of despair and dejection. I wonder what God is saying to the nations of the world in the 21st century. So to summarize this first part through this poem, Isaiah's aim was to expose the folly of Judah thinking of making an alliance with Egypt. To join Egypt would be, one, to associate with a nation under divine wrath, verse 1, to trust the promises of a divided people, verse 2, to look for help in a collapsing economy, verses 5 to 10, to expect wisdom where there was only folly, verses 11 to 13, and to believe that those who were unable to solve their own problems could solve their problem, verse 15. And Egypt here stands for the Gentile world. Here is the Gentile world heading for irreversible decline. Egypt's real problem was A, divine opposition, who can stand against God Almighty, and B, trying to be a solution to their own problems and to run the world without (coughs) reference to God. These are the negative reasons why Judah shouldn't trust Egypt. It all seems pretty hopeless. But remember, God's at work. However, there's a positive reason why Egypt, why trusting Egypt is foolish as well. And it seems a strange one to me. The reason is that the Egyptians will one turn... Sorry, the Egyptians will one day turn to Judah's God. But as I said earlier, the people of Judah were failing to trust God. They wanted to look elsewhere for help. So we move on to the healing of the nation in verses 16 to 24. We've turned and we turn from poetry to prose. 
And here, Isaiah speaks of the restoration of Egypt and its gathering into the people of God. Isaiah foretells five events, which being prophecy, look forward into the future, but may or may not happen in this particular order. Each event is preceded by the words, in that day. Verse 16, in that day, the Egyptians will shudder with fear when they recognize the hand of the Lord is raised against them. And even to mention the name of Judah will have them terrified as they begin to understand what the Lord is planning against them. So they shudder with fear when they recognize the hand of the Lord. Verse 18, in that day, five Egyptian cities will speak Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. And this will probably include Heliopolis, the city of the sun god, Ray. In that day, verses 19 and 20, they will cry out to the Lord because of their oppressor and God will deliver them by sending them a saviour and a defender. And knowing their prayers have been answered, the people will then worship the Lord by building an altar in the centre of the land and a monument on the border. Verses 21 and 22. In that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship him and serve him, and he will heal them. And we know, don't we, that actually Egypt has one of the ancient Christian uh, churches. They still, they're being very persecuted at the moment, but that is something that has continued from that time when they did turn to God. And verse 23, finally, in that day, God will do something quite remarkable. He will not only deliver them from their Assyrian oppressors, but he will join the three countries together in common worship of the Lord. And they will accept each other because each has been accepted by the Lord. And as they have been blessed, so they will bring God's blessing to the world. We do have to remember that God's ultimate aim is not to destroy his people, nor the Egyptians, but to unite them with the Assyrians to worship him together. This is God's plan for the world, which he will work out through his sovereign power. He desires salvation for the whole world. And even while the nation of Egypt faces total collapse, God will be at work fulfilling his plan of salvation. So there are sort of two things happening here. There's the external, um, the, the fear, the oppression, the economic, social, political collapse. But underneath is the plan of God. He's got it in mind and he is working his purposes out. This might be a useful illustration as we try to wrestle with, with that and maybe 
with issues in our own lives. In the icy cold waters around Greaseland, Greaseland, <laughs> around Greenland, are countless icebergs. Some are little and some are gigantic. And if you and I had the opportunity, I believe, if we, to, to study them carefully, we'd notice that the smaller icebergs move in one direction, while the big, massive icebergs flow in a different direction. Apparently, the explanation is simple. The surface winds drive the little ones. I only know just a little bit about the wind, having been in Iceland in January, where we had force nine gales. It was pretty nippy. But here the winds drive the little ones, whereas the huge masses of ice are carried along by deep ocean currents. So it's possible that when we face trials and tragedies, whether individually or as a nation, our lives are being subject to two forces, both surface winds and ocean currents. The winds represent everything that is changeable, unpredictable and distressing. But op operating simultaneously with these gusts and gales is another force that's even more powerful, the movement of God's wise and sovereign purposes along with the deep flow of his unchanging love. And so in the final section, uh, in chapter 20, in verses 1 to 6, Isaiah, in his prophecy against Egypt, returns, or he turns from the hopeful promises of the distant future that Egypt will come and turn to God, to the coming judgment which will take place sometime in the near future. And Isaiah is helping the people of Judah to understand what's likely to happen in their present day. Isaiah is called by God to act out the coming defeat and exile of Egypt by going about stripped and barefoot in the hope that as the people of Judah see the Egyptian captives marched off naked and barefoot, they will truly understand the hopelessness of trusting in an alliance with Egypt. In addition, the people of Judah will see God's word being fulfilled, and it's Isaiah's hope that their faith in God's sovereign power and God's wider plan will be strengthened. Isaiah's work is to be a faith builder. He visibly committed himself to the truth of the message that God had given him, and which the Israelites would see fulfilled. Isaiah, like St. Paul, was not ashamed of proclaiming God's word and plan of salvation, even when his message was unpopular. God is at work in his world, and nothing will stop him fulfilling his eternal plan to bring all mankind back to himself. If you were to read 
Romans 1 at this point, you will see that St. Paul says that since the beginning of the world, God's everlasting power and sovereignty have been visible to the eye of reason. But mankind has refused to honor him as God, so much so that our minds have become futile. We boast of our wisdom and have exchanged the immortal God for man-made gods. And having exchanged the truth of God for a lie, we worship created things instead of our creator God. So he's allowed us to live with our selfish ambitions and wrongdoing. But we shall be judged, Jew and Gentile alike, for God has no favorites. And God calls us to turn from our own ways to his ways, to acknowledge him and his son Jesus Christ as saviour, and to bow to him as Lord of all, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And one day his kingdom will be established in all heaven and earth, and all heaven and earth will worship him as the one true God, for that is who he is, our sovereign God. So how are we to respond? We are to be patient and to remain faithful. God is active now, and nothing is impossible with him. And we're in that period of grace when prophetic warnings of judgment can be heated, he heeded and, re, um, and we can repent and have faith. And every people of every nation can be gathered into his kingdom. As Christian believers, we don't need to be afraid of God's judgment, for we are covered by the blood of Jesus. But we do need to be sharp in faith and in prayerful obedience to God. It's just so easy, isn't it, to adopt the attitudes and behavior of the non-Christian society in which we live. We have to be ready to stand up and to be counted for Jesus. And even when, perhaps like Maggie Thatcher, we won't necessarily be loved for it. The church today is in desperate need to believe that God is at work in the world and that everything happens and that everything that happens is under his control and that he is working to the fulfillment of his eternal plan. The question is, do I really believe God has sovereign power over all the earth? Do we believe the promises of God? And how do we reconcile them to world events? I have no easy answers. We need to pray and discuss these things so that we know whether we should be taking action as well as trusting God for the outcome. So for me, the big challenge is, do I really believe God has sovereign power over the earth and that he, as we sing, is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year?
Do you believe it? Do you really believe God has sovereign power over all the earth? If so, what difference does that make to your life and outlook? And if you don't believe it, why not? Let's just take a moment to think about that. And then we'll pray. Lord, sometimes I find it difficult to believe that you are sovereign in power and over all the earth, that you put leaders in place and that you allow wars and disasters to happen. And perhaps others here feel the same sometimes. So I pray that you will show us more of your power that you will open our eyes in faith to believe the words of Scripture that you are working your purpose out and that nothing, absolutely nothing, can stop you from doing that. And we thank you that while your power is absolute, your understanding and your love is unlimited. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.